Welcome to the H&E Podcast, where we seek to celebrate the steadfast love and faithfulness of Christ through discussions on church history, biblical spirituality, the Bible, Christian living, and theology. Shall we get started? On today's episode, I'm joined with Dr. Roy Paul. Dr. Roy Paul is the author of the forthcoming book by H&E Publishing entitled Jonathan Edwards and the Stockbridge Mohican Indians, His Mission and Sermons. Dr. Paul, thank you for joining me. Why don't you tell us a bit about yourself? Sure. Well, I, I was uh, born in Perth, which is a small town in uh, eastern Ontario, and I saw a very historic Scottish settlement of about 6,000 people. Um, after graduating high school, I went to Loyalist College in Belleville, did a couple of diploma programs in chemistry, then proceeded to go to Queen's University, uh, where I studied uh, chemistry and psychology. Uh, from there on to the University of Guelph, where I did a Bachelor of Science degree in biomedical toxicology. So for the, the last 25 years of my career, I was a drug development scientist for uh, the Tylenol and Motrin division of Johnson & Johnson, and uh, was fortunate enough to get an early retirement when they uh, purchased another drug company. Any of us that were 55 or older and had 25 or more years of service were offered a full retirement package. So, so I took the golden handshake and uh, sailed off into the sunset of retirement. <laughs> but at, uh, at 55, I was still a little young. Um, and it was an interesting experience uh, because my whole life, even from uh, childhood, I had my sights set on being a scientist. I always wanted to wear a white coat and be a scientist. And I did that. And uh, I had a really great career. And I remember my last day of work, walking out uh, to the parking lot that same walkway I had uh, tread for 25 years. And halfway to my vehicle, I stopped dead. And all of a sudden, the reality hit me. It's over. I've wanted to do this. I've had a great career. But it's over. Now what? Uh, and so I got involved in various uh, volunteer activities through the church, uh, and also with a local public school, uh, helping with a music program there. But, but I was restless. And... Uh, so one day my wife said to me, you know what, you love teaching, you love learning. We have two Bible colleges very close to our home. Why don't you take a few courses? So I attended uh, Heritage uh, Seminary in Cambridge, Ontario one day and sat in on their classes and uh, I was hooked. I, I came home and said to my wife, I'm gonna do a master's in theology. And she said, whoa, okay, that's a few courses. Uh, so I did that. I went back to school in uh, 2013 and uh, did my uh, Master of Theological Studies uh, there. Uh, graduated in 2016. And uh, a couple of nights after uh, I was finished uh, my last courses, we were having dinner. And my wife said to me, six weeks, I mean, six months. And I said, six months what? She said, I give you six months until you're into something else. And I went, no, 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 this was hard. I've been out of school 40 years. This master's degree was tough. No, I'm done. Well, it was about three weeks later that uh, I said, I'm going to do a doctorate in church history. <laughs> and so that's uh, that just got completed in uh, December. 
That's excellent. That is one of my favorite stories. And uh, such an encouragement, too, because while I've been working on my undergrad for about eight years, and I've been plodding along slowly but surely, and I'm just reaching the end of it, every time I hear your story, I realize, oh, there's still lots of time. There's lots of time to just keep plodding away one course at a time. And um, if the Lord wills, do a doctorate at some point. So it's uh, it's an awesome story. Mm, absolutely. And mm, so you, thank you. <laughs> uh, and so what got you into Jonathan Edwards? You study Jonathan Edwards for your doctorate. Mm, that's correct. Well, um, going back to my master's degree, part of the requirement was uh, church history one and two. Uh, which I studied under Dr. Michael Haken. Um, and as you know, uh, Dr. Haken is not a lecturer. He's a storyteller. And when he started uh, talking about the life of Jonathan Edwards and his spirituality and his piety, um, I, w I was hooked on Jonathan Edwards. But more than that, when he started talking about Edwards' ministry to the Mohican Indians, uh, there was something that just kind of struck me uh, because he talked about him going to Stockbridge, Massachusetts, and that's where the uh, Mohican Indians were. And I kind of perked up when he said that because my wife and I had visited Stockbridge for a week's vacation oh, back in about 2006 and knew absolutely nothing of Jonathan Edwards or the Mohican Indians at that time or their connection to Stockbridge. For us, it was just a pretty little American town the place where Norman Rockwell lived and had his studio, uh, a very historic Americana type uh, setting. But I knew nothing about the Mohicans or Edwards. And so this renewed my interest. I thought, I want to know more about them. So we went back to Stockbridge uh, for another week with the thought in mind, let's look more at Jonathan Edwards and the Mohican history here. And then when I finished uh, the master's degree and decided to do the doctorate in church history, I thought, I want to know more about that period of Edward's life. Because as I started looking into it, there was very little written on it. There was yeah, the, you know, the, the biography of, of Edwards and his time there, his great theological works that he wrote while in Stockbridge but not really much about his ministry to the Mohican Indians. I couldn't find much in the literature about that. So when I um, decided to do that topic for the doctorate for my dissertation, I contacted Yale, uh, Dr. Ken Minkema, who's the director of the Jonathan Edwards Center there. And I asked him, um, do you have any of Jonathan Edwards' sermons that he preached to the Mohicans that have never been published? keeping in mind uh, you know, doctoral work has to be original uh, research. And uh, Dr. Minkema wrote back to me and said, uh, well, there are about 200 on file, and to date only four of them have ever seen the light of day since Edwards preached them in the 1700s. So you're doing us a favor by doing this. So I found my little niche. I found my interest, and uh, that's what led me into Edwards and the Mohicans. Yeah, that's excellent. And obviously, the fruit of that is now uh, a forthcoming book, which we expect to be ready uh, by July at the latest. So that is uh, really a ground groundbreaking study, and it's going to be a wonderful resource. 
why don't you tell us a bit about Edwards? Who who was Edwards for those are listening that might not know as much about him? Sure, I'll, I'll give you a little summary of uh, of Edwards and his life. Um, Edwards was born in East Windsor, uh, Connecticut, on October the fifth of seventeen o three, and he was one of eleven children to Timothy Edwards and uh, Esther Stoddard. He had ten sisters. He was the only boy in the family. And uh, it's kind of an interesting anecdote. Everybody in that family was over six feet tall. And uh, the locals used to joke about uh, Timothy Edwards, 60 feet of daughters. And so anyway, Edwards uh, grew up um, in a family that was very, very strict. Uh, Timothy was a preacher, his father. Um, and he educated all of his children. So all 10 daughters were highly educated, which was kind of unprecedented for that uh, period of time. But by the time Jonathan was 12, he was fluent in Latin, Hebrew, and Greek. And uh, people were amazed at his knowledge and and his grasp of those uh, languages. So he went off to um, Yale when he was 13 years old. And uh, he graduated with a BA and was top of his class, graduated in 1720, and and then completed his master's degree in 1722, two years later. Um, His spiritual training really came at the hands of his father, Timothy, and his uh, very staunch grandfather, Solomon Stoddard, his his mother's father. Um, Stoddard was a, a highly influential preacher in the Connecticut Valley and was, uh, I'm not sure if you could say affectionately, but he was known to the locals as the Pope of the Connecticut Valley. And uh, and so um, Edwards had several stirrings, uh, spiritual stirrings in his uh, early teens, but nothing that really stuck until the spring of 1721. Then he had his true spiritual awakening uh, nothing in this literature or his biography points to a specific event, but he does talk about um, coming away from an experience with his sweet. He loved to use the word sweet and sweetness when uh, talking about his communion with God. And so we know that it was sometime in that uh, the spring period of 1721 that he came to a true faith. Um, after his time at Yale, he had a couple of small parishes. Um, one in a Presbyterian parish in uh, New York City until about 1723. And then uh, he had a congregation in uh, Bolton, Connecticut until about 1724. And then he went back to Yale as a tutor for a couple of years and uh, finished that assignment in 1726. The reason he finished that uh, assignment was that his aging grandfather Stoddard in Northampton, Connecticut, brought him on as an assistant to him in Northampton. And uh, so he became a kind of an understudy there to Solomon Stoddard. Most people would know Jonathan Edwards for his his work in the revival and in uh, Northampton. Can you fill us in a little bit about maybe his ministry there and then what led him to uh, Stockbridge? Okay. Um, While he was in Northampton and still under the tutelage of his grandfather, his grandfather had some practices that Jonathan could not really come to grips with spiritually. 
and yes, there were a number of uh, revivals there. And that was the time when George Whitfield came over to America and was preaching. Uh, it said that uh, all the time that Whitfield was preaching, Edwards was uh, weeping, though the, the complete time. And it was under Whitfield's uh, preaching that a, a couple of Jonathan's children came to uh, faith in Christ as well. So uh, he really called the local ministerial association to come together and pray for revival, which did happen through the Connecticut Valley. Um, it came to a very abrupt end when uh, Edward's uncle, Joseph Hawley, uh, decided that he, he had had a, a history of depression, decided that the only way he could be sure of being in God's presence was through death. And so he committed suicide. Um, and Hawley's son really blamed Edwards for that because he said Edwards' preaching and the revival really preyed on his father's conscience and drove him to suicide. So the revival came to a, a kind of an abrupt end there. So after the death of uh, Edward's grandfather, Stoddard, Edwards tried to bring the congregation around to biblical methodology and biblical doctrine. And where the issues with Stoddard were, uh, were really a twofold. One was that Stoddard believed that communion was a saving ordinance. So therefore, he would serve the Lord's Supper to anyone. It was an open table. Edwards really had trouble coming to grasp with that. He believed that only professing believers and members of the church should take communion. Uh, the other thing that Stoddard had uh, instituted was something called the halfway covenant. And the halfway covenant was that uh, he believed that um, if the parents had been baptized but were not full members, that their children um, could come to the table and be members. So they were eligible for membership through the fact that their parents had been baptized, even though their parents were not full members of the church. And so this halfway covenant, again, disturbed Edwards. And so at one point in uh, at about 1751, Edwards made an edict to the congregation that only professing believers and members of the church could come to the table. He would not serve communion to anyone uh, that was not a professing believer. Well, that raised a major uproar uh, within the congregation, as you can imagine. There were a lot of people that were very, very loyal to Solomon Stoddard and, and his memory. There was a second thing that Edwards dealt with during that time period. And that was something called the uh, the Young Folks Bible or the Bad Book, as it came to be known. Uh, this was a, a book on midwifery, midwifery, however you pronounce it, that uh, some of the young men had gotten their hands on and it had illustrations and things. And so the young men were taunting the girls of the congregation um, you know, about their monthly cycle and about things like that. And they we're getting quite rude. And so this came to Edward's attention. And uh, he was concerned not only because these were some of his parishioners, but because even his own daughters, daughters were being taunted by these men. So Edwards made a tactical error. One Sunday from the pulpit, 
he mentioned that there was a disciplinary issue and, about this book. And he asked for a number of people to remain after the service, and he named names from the pulpit. His fatal mistake was that he failed to differentiate between who were the perpetrators that were under investigation and those who that were merely witnesses to what had gone on and could provide information. So the people of the congregation left the church, and they were all in a stir about this. And so that really caused a major rift between Edwards and the congregation. So those two events, the uh, coming to doctrinal issues over what his grandfather was had instituted, and then this uh, young folks Bible or the bad book as it was called, and then coupled with the fact that the congregation was not paying his salary, he had to go back several times and ask for money uh, just to make ends meet. Uh, it really brought things to a head. The congregation then decided that they would uh, look to dismiss him. So they called a council and they brought in ministers from the area to actually sit in judgment. And um, of the 200 people, only about 20 people ultimately supported Edwards in the congregation and the majority of the ministers voted against him as well. And so he was dismissed from the pulpit in Northampton. The, the ironic thing about that is that as soon as he was uh, dismissed, uh, they had no one to preach. And this went on for almost six, eight months, I guess. And so they had to go and knock on his door and say, would you mind coming and preaching this Sunday? We don't have anybody for the pulpit. Uh, so, so it was a bit ironic from that standpoint. Um, they made it very difficult for him. He was heartbroken. He held absolutely no, um, no anger or any uh, such feeling toward the congregation. He loved them deeply. He loved them in the Lord, and he just felt terrible regret at what had happened. But they treated him terribly. They took his land away. As a part of the parsonage, he was granted property in which to raise crops and raise animals. They immediately took that access away from him and made it really difficult for him. And so that ultimately led to him uh, going to Stockbridge, Massachusetts. Wow. So he, uh, so he was ordained in 1727, and he, mm -hmm. preached, and he preaches his farewell sermon in 1750. So that's about 23, 23 years that he was ministering among them. I can't even imagine. When you think of a lot of, of pastors today, uh, it's said that many of them don't even last four to eight years in one church. But here's a, a faithful father in the Lord and 23 years among them, and then he's gone. He was very faithful to his calling to them, as Solomon, his grandfather, had been. His grandfather had been there for over 50 years, I believe, uh, when he passed away. The really sad thing about that is it was uh, Edward's own cousins, the Williams family in Northampton, that really spearheaded the efforts against him, Ephraim Williams uh, Sr. and uh, Elisha Williams. And uh, so they were, they were first cousins of Jonathan Edwards, and they were spearheading, spearheading this uh, effort against him. 
and that would follow him to Stockbridge, as we'll see. <laughs> oh wow! So he um, so he went to Stockbridge. Tell me a bit more about that. How did that come to be? Well, um, interestingly, the uh, the village of Stockbridge was incorporated in uh, 1735. So the Mohicans themselves uh, were in small pockets in the Connecticut Valley and along the Housatonic River. And so they'd already had kind of loosely knit communities. They were not as nomadic as some of the Indian tribes of uh, New England were. They tended to stay in, in pockets here and there. So they were kind of congregating already. Uh, David Brainerd had been ministering to some of the local Indians and uh, Brainerd actually died in Edward's home in Northampton and spent the last few months of his life there. So Edwards was listening to Brainerd's stories of the Indians and ministering to them and how their hearts were open to hearing the gospel. And, and so when the village of Stockbridge um, was being instituted, John Sargent was asked to come to them to minister it was an interesting situation because the Mohicans actually requested uh, a minister to come to them to teach them about the great good spirit, as they called God. And so uh, John Sargent went to them in 1735, and he was with them about 15 years. Uh, interestingly, John Sargent married Abigail Williams, Ephraim Williams' daughter. And so you see the Williams uh, preceded Edwards to Stockbridge. Uh, so John uh, was there about 15 years ministering, and he had a very solid congregation built up, preaching uh, to the English and to the Mohicans. But uh, John Sargent learned the Mohican tongue so he could preach to them in their own language. So he came down with a... a uh, fever very suddenly in about 1750 and died within a couple of weeks. And so uh, the Stockbridge Indians were without a congregation or without a minister, I should say. The people in the congregation were people that had come from Connecticut and from Northampton. Abigail Williams' father, Ephraim Sr. and uh, Elisha Williams. So Edward's cousins were there already ahead of him. Um, and so they looked for somebody to fill John Sargent's place. The first person that they looked for was Ezra Stiles. They thought Ezra would be a good candidate. Uh, he seemed to have a very solid biblical uh, understanding of scripture. Uh, but at this time, uh, Ezra was starting to doubt his own faith and even whether he could accept the Bible. The second reason that they were keen to bring Ezra uh, to Stockbridge was that Abigail was a young widow and still very uh, eligible, and Ezra Style was was an eligible bachelor. So uh, Styles came a couple of weekends and stayed in Stockbridge at uh, Abigail Sargent's uh, home, and uh, she tried to convince him to come. Uh, ultimately, his father Isaac Styles uh, convinced him not to take the uh, position in Stockbridge. Now, interestingly, Ezra Stiles would become the seventh president of Yale University uh, later on. So um, the call went to Jonathan Edwards to come, 
And uh, the Williams family, uh, Elisha Williams made the comment, well, the only good of this is it'll raise the price of my land. Because at this point, the Williams family had already been posturing and swindling the Indians out of property. So they were buying up hundreds of acres of property from the Mohican Indians. Um, the Indians kind of had, um, well, it was difficult for them because when they started trading with the Dutch and the English, the English and the Dutch would, of course, ply them with rum. Well, the interesting thing about Indian genetics is they can't metabolize alcohol the same as uh, you and I can, and it really affects them deeply. And of course, the fur traders realized this very quickly that if you give them a cup of rum right off the bat, you can, you know, you can take advantage of them when you're dealing with them for pelts and whatever. And so the Williams clan had been heavily involved in, in swindling the Mohican Indians out of property up to this point. So um, Edwards comes to Stockbridge and uh, he does not speak the language. He has an interpreter who is Mohican, who had already grasped the gospel and was Christian. Um, so he starts ministering to them and he preaches twice on Sunday, once to the Mohicans in their language through the interpreter and then once to the uh, English settlers. That's fascinating. Now, I'm, I'm curious. I've, I've heard he was sort of there, uh, but he wasn't really engaged with them. He you know, loved his people the same way that he did in Northampton. Can you comment on that? Sure, sure. There were, there were some people that have written that uh, Edward's time in Stockbridge could be considered uh, somewhat of a sabbatical for him where he was away from the, the rigors of pulpit ministry like he had in Northampton. And it was here that he actually produced his greatest theological works. Well, only one part of that is true. He did create some of his greatest theological works while he was there. But Edwards was 100% and totally committed to the welfare, not only physically, but spiritually of the Mohican Indians. And the records prove this. The letters, he, he had a nonstop letter writing campaign to the government on their behalf. Under the Williams family, there had been a boarding school set up for the Mohican boys to learn English so that they could read the Bible on their own and also to teach them animal husbandry skills. Well, what happened was that Captain Kellogg, who was the, uh, the school master and uh, under Ephraim Williams, guys, uh, was actually using the Indian boys to work his fields, wasn't feeding them properly, uh, they were not properly clothed, they were not getting the funding that was coming for them. And so when Edwards showed up, he put a, a relentless letter writing campaign to the government to them on their behalf. Unfortunately, by then the damage had been done. And by the time that the government passed control of the school to Edwards, the Indians decided they'd had enough. And they just were not going to participate anymore. And they were actually moving away for the, for the most part from, uh, from Stockbridge. Uh, it's, a, it's a very sad time. But um, spiritually, we don't have any records of 
Edward's time with them. We have meticulous records from John Sargent's time, number of conversions, baptisms, and uh, that sort of thing. But we don't have those sort of records from Edward's time, which leads, again, to speculation. He wasn't really concerned about them. But it's just not true if you look at the history of the number of letters that he wrote on their behalf and the actual effect that he did have. Prior to Edward's coming there, there were uh, hundreds of land transfers of Mohican properties into the hands of the English. But after Edwards was there from 1751 to 1758, there were only five land transfers of Mohican property. So he was very diligent in making sure that the Indians were not taken advantage of. So um, if you look at his time there, he actually purchased some property from the Mohican Indians. Um, and it was a parcel of like one acre, and five acres, as opposed to the hundreds of acres that the Williams clan and some other people were purchasing. Reason being twofold, really. He had his property taken away from him in Northampton before he left. And so he had no way to graze cattle. He had no place to grow a garden for his family. So he ensured that he had property to do that, to sustain his family while in Stockbridge. And then also to have some property to sell in his retirement should he need the money. Well, as we'll see, uh, he never got to sell that property. Uh, so his, um, his, if you'd like me to discuss with you just some of his sermons, I'd be glad to do that and just look at how his sermon style changed over the time. Oh, yeah, that would be wonderful. Okay, so when, when Edwards first arrived in 1751, they had already had a minister, John Sargent, for 15 years. They were pretty firmly grounded in the gospel. There was an established congregation there. Edwards' beginning sermons are meticulously handwritten note, as they were when he was in Northampton. He kept meticulous notes. And he. the thing is, he never referred to his notes when he was preaching. He didn't read from them. Um, maybe they were, you know, a kind of a little crutch for him to have there just in case. But records show that he never preached from his notes, but he kept meticulous notes. Um, so at the beginning, he had meticulous handwritten notes, which are available at the Beinecke in uh, at Yale in um, East Haven and uh, or New Haven. Um, and so his first sermons to the Mohicans go right back to the beginning. He talks to them about Peter and Cornelius in the book of Acts and how the angel sent Peter to Cornelius, who was not a believer, not a person of God, not a person chosen uh, of the Jewish race. And because Cornelius was a Gentile, he was presented the gospel by Peter. And then from there, the gospel spread to England and other parts of the world. And he said to them, I am like Peter was to Cornelius. I am Peter to you. I am bringing the gospel message to you. So Edwards went right back to the foundations of Christianity. He preached very solid uh, gospel messages to them. In the middle of his tenure, about 1753 to 1755, the French and Indian War broke out where uh, some of the Indians from Canada were venturing down and the British soldiers venturing down, um, or the French soldiers, I should say, into New England and raiding 
and uh, killing the people, killing the Indians. So there was this war going on, and it was kind of guerrilla tactics at the time. So uh, Stockbridge had been attacked. Uh, there was a family that was killed just outside of Stockbridge. And so a stockade was built around Edward's home. This made it very difficult because they sent soldiers to live in Edward's home. Some of the Mohican Indians came because they were frightened. They lived in his home. He was billeting all of these people. He was feeding them. He was providing fodder for up to 100 horses and still ministering to the people. And so if you look at his sermons from that particular time period, they become very clipped. There's not the handwritten notes anymore, long, drawn out. They're very short point form, but they're always back to the same point, And that is believe in God, trust in God. Some of us may die. That's true. But we must trust in God and never give up hope and never give up our faith. Then as we get to the end of his tenure, um, in 1758, he was offered the position of the third president at Princeton University after his son-in-law, uh, Aaron Burr, senior, passed away. Um, her husband, her wife, or his wife, I should say, was Esther, Esther Edwards, uh, Jonathan's daughter. And so Edwards was offered this position as uh, president of Princeton and opted to go there in 15, uh, 1758, January of 1758. So in January, the uh, latter part of January, two weeks apart, he preached two farewell sermons to the Mohican people. And they were very fatherly in tone. Uh, he told them to remember the ministers that had come to preach to them and bring them the gospel. They were gifts to them from God. And he said in one of those sermons, thank God that today you heard this sermon. And he constantly returned over his whole tenure uh, throughout his sermons. You see him returning to three things with the Mohicans. And he would preach to them about lying, cheating, and drunkenness. The three things that seemed to be uh, really plaguing them. Um, and so on his very last sermon, he again exhorted them to stay aware, watch, pray, always. That's what he, his last three words in that sermon, watch, pray, always. So Edwards uh, left them in January of 1758, went to Princeton. At that time, smallpox was rampant. Uh, there was the new inoculation going around. Edwards firmly believed in that. So he was inoculated for the smallpox and uh, came down with it, actually. And he succumbed in uh, February of 1758 of uh, smallpox. Well, that's so helpful. So he was there about seven years in Stockbridge. Is that right? That's correct. Mm -hmm. And so yeah. some have suggested that his ministry wasn't effective. Would you agree to disagree? Obviously, it's a rhetorical question. So I know what you're going to say. I've read your book. <laughs> <laughs> well, first of all, I, um, I have to go to uh, Ezra Stiles, back to Ezra Stiles, if you remember him, um, the guy who was maybe going to replace John Sargent. Um, Ezra Stiles said, said this. This was in a letter he wrote to someone. 
Edwards' valuable writings in another generation will pass into as transient notice, perhaps scarce oblivion. And when posterity occasionally comes across them in the rubbish of libraries, the rare characters who may read and be pleased with them will be looked upon as singular and whimsical. Now, the thing is, how many of Ezra Stiles' writings do we know about today? And indeed, to a certain extent, Edwards was forgotten in the 19th century to a certain extent, but in the 20th century, oh my goodness, there has been a total resurgence. Um, at the end of Ian Murray's book on uh, the new life of Jonathan Edwards, uh, he says, the ministry of Jonathan Edwards is very clearly not yet concluded. He's being read today as he has not been read for over a century and in more countries than ever before. And so the question comes, Was so we know about Edwards' writings, but was Edwards' ministry to the Mohican people themselves effective? Was he really of some effect to them spiritually? And the interesting thing is, uh, while I was uh, doing my research, I was contacted by one of the current members of the Mohican tribe and chatting with him. Just to, uh, it was my first trip. I was actually going to the reservation and I was put in touch with him and I was asking him protocol, what to do, what not to do, uh, because I was collecting research. I wanted information. And so I said, I told him the work that I was doing. And he said to me, if it were not for the ministry of Jonathan Edwards, my ancestors, my grandmother, my mother, and I would not be Christians today. So uh, his name was Mark Shaw, and Mark pointed right back to the ministry of Jonathan Edwards as the reason he was a Christian today. And the other thing that really struck me is that as I was working through my dissertation last fall, I got the uh, recent issue of the Journal of the Evangelical Theological Society, and clearly 25% of the articles in that one issue were on Jonathan Edwards and his spirituality. So um, Ed Edwards' effect today is just as much as it was back then, probably even more so. Um, when you read his works, his depth of spirituality and piety just put most of us to shame. He was so in tune with God as his creator, as his sustainer, as his loving Lord. That's great. What a, a wonderful testimony uh, of that brother, just the faithful work of Edwards and over years and years to see the fruit of that, uh, fruit that Edwards probably never saw. Mm -hmm. If I could give you a little interesting anecdote of uh, during my research, so I was struck, as I mentioned, by Edwards and the Mohican Indians. And so we are in, my wife and I are in the archives in Stockbridge, Massachusetts, looking through some uh, old documents and, and things. My wife's family um, are early settlers to United States. Her grandfather, 10 generations ago, was one of those Dutch fur traders. He arrived in Albany, New York in 1651. Uh, Tunis Slingerland was his name. And we knew from family records that Tunis had purchased, in quotes, 
10,000 acres of property from the wolf, bear, and turtle clans, but we didn't know what tribe, just had the three clans in the Albany, New York area. So my wife and I are in the uh, archives in Stockbridge, Massachusetts, looking through old documents. And lo and behold, she comes across this entry of the sale of 10,000 acres of property to Tunis Slingerland from the Mohican Indians for a couple of barrels of cider, some muskets, and uh, I think 30 quarts of rum. Now, the interesting thing is that uh, the town of Slingerlands, New York, is still there today. It's a suburb of Albany, New York, and part of that 10,000 acres of property is uh, the town of Slingerlands, New York. Well, then there was another little Twilight Zone moment happened, and that is as I was studying the history of the spirituality of the Mohican people right down to modern day, um, in the 1800s, 1848, the minister that uh, was their pastor was a man by the name of Jeremiah Slingerland, my wife's maiden name. And it's like, oh my goodness, this is interesting. We have to look at this a little closer. Well, as it turns out, Jeremiah was full-blood Mohican Indian. Um, so, but it was not uncommon then for them to take English or Dutch names. So that, that's not the shocker. But Jeremiah's wife was white. She was not Indian. And her name was Sarah Seymour. Now, this is where it gets interesting. My wife's grandfather and great-grandfather's middle name is Seymour. And her great-grandfather was an itinerant Methodist minister in the Niagara region of Ontario. Her family uh, split during the Revolutionary War. Some of them came across Niagara into Canada. And uh, so her grandfather was an itinerant minister there. So we are still trying to unravel the ministry and or the, uh, the mystery and the connection of her family to uh, Sarah Seymour and Jeremiah Slingerland. But I'm sure there's a little more fun to be had there. <laughs> wow, what, what a little treat to find in the midst of your studying. I'm really excited to, to see this work go out, and it's been a blessing to, to read and to, to work through. And uh, now that you've finished your, your work and you are a restless soul, what's, uh, what's next for you? <laughs> well, at, at the moment, uh, I'm actually working as uh, Dr. Michael Haken's personal assistant, um, and he always has works that uh, keep me busy. He has an ongoing series called The Monographs in Baptist History. And uh, there's also the DeGreiter series, which is the complete uh, works of Andrew Puller. And uh, we're working on those as well. And uh, I'm very happy that sometimes he gets me to step in for him doing some lectures. I had an opportunity to do that once at uh, the Heritage Seminary this year. Um, also to do some lecturing on a, a New England, Puritan New England tour we did last fall with uh, he and Dr. Joel Beakey of Puritan Reform Seminary. So a little bit of lecturing. And uh, also, uh, this is the 400th anniversary of the Mayflower landing in Plymouth, Massachusetts. And a number of the people on the Mayflower came from one particular church in Norwich, England, and the church there is putting together an, an anniversary, a 400th anniversary commemorative book. And so they've asked me to write the chapter called Encounter with the Indians. So that's, uh, I'm in the middle of doing that at the moment. That's excellent.
And uh, one thing I like to ask before we leave is, uh, what are you reading right now? What's on your nightstand or your bookshelf? What have you been uh, looking at? Oh, that's a really good question. I always have about four books on the go. Um, so I'm reading Ian Murray's book again. And also, uh, oh, uh, it, it's Jonathan Edwards' great-grandson's uh, biography of him. I also am looking at a book called Mayflower by uh, Nathaniel Philbrick, which is a very interesting book. And then a book on the life of Robert Murray McShane, someone I knew absolutely nothing about. So those four are on my nightstand. <laughs> Excellent. Well, brother, it was really good to have you. And uh, again, I'm, I'm thrilled for this publication. And for those listening, if you would like to pick a copy up of Jonathan Edwards and the Stockbridge Mohican Indians, you can pre-order it on the H&E website, and it is currently 50% off for those who uh, pre-order it. And so do yourself a favor and pick that up and be blessed uh, by uh, Dr. Paul's uh, ministry and labors on that. <laughs>